Hi, I'm Kevin Harrington. I'm Samba Bachili. Nina Vaca, Chief Executive Officer of Pinnacle Group. An original shark from the hit TV show Shark Tank. The CEO of ADS Group. The largest Latina-owned workforce solutions in America. I first identified myself as an entrepreneur when I was 15 years old. My mother and father immigrated here with a suitcase and a dream. I had a front row seat to entrepreneurship. I am living proof of what is possible in this country. Today, the marketplace is, is very tough. The challenge for African market today is its access to capital. The number one reason why we can't scale as entrepreneurs is access to capital. What makes Globe so different and so powerful is the access to experts, gurus, mentors, coaches, financiers, venture people, money. When I started my business, I immediately went to engage with different communities, different platforms. Glow makes that experience digital. A digital platform makes it so much faster and so much easier for you to meet like-minded people. The financial platform that Glow have that make Glow unique. Glow is about commerce, Glow is about community, and Glow is about having access to capital. Glow is an asset to every entrepreneur in this country and globally. It's, it's about helping you take your business, your idea, to the next step. Hi there, and welcome to Business Acceleration 2.0. It's a show where leaders go to grow, and we're thrilled that you're here with us. Our sponsors today are the Business Finishing School, which is an online program for entrepreneurs to take their business to the next level. It helps them grow their business to become more profitable, sustainable, scalable, and saleable. Because let's face it, everybody wants to be able to sell their business at some point, right? And even if you don't want to sell your business, it's nice to have someone come and ask to buy your business. Our other sponsor is the Global Leaders Organization, or GLOW as we like to call it. My name is Michelle Lemons pacenti I'm the CEO and founder of GLOW. GLOW is a membership organization that's made for the entrepreneur. It helps you with your community, finding more like-minded entrepreneurs as you're, just as yourself. It helps you build through doing business with other decision makers. And then finally, what makes GLOW really unique is the ability to raise capital and invest on the platform. This, and we're thrilled that you're here with us today. Um, this March, March 3rd through the 6th, GLOW has its very first inaugural summit. It's going to be held in Dallas, Texas, March 3rd through the 6th at the Adolphus Hotel. Um, the speaker lineup is amazing. We've got Kevin Harrington, who was one of the original sharks from Shark Tank. We've got Tim Draper and his daughter, Jesse Draper, who will be here talking about crypto and Bitcoin and and actually things that they're looking to invest in and where they see the direction of um, the next new thing. So that'll be interesting. In fact, we're actually going to be doing a pitch off with Kevin and Tim here. Um, we have best-selling author Vince Pacenti. Yes, my husband. New York Times bestseller. He'll be here with the launch of his new book called The Earthquake. We have Ford Sakes, marketing guru, and just a whole slew of other speakers. So be sure and go check it out at withglow.com. You can see the full lineup of speakers and we're adding to it every week, new speakers. So it's very exciting, our first inaugural event. We hope that you can make it, go to withglow.com. And then finally, we're gonna be carrying on this conversation that we have today, tomorrow at 10 a.m. Central Time on the After Glow Show with Sia and Aaron. 
So our Dallas chapter chairs, C and Aaron, host the show, The Afterglow Show, and they take the discussion we're having right here, right now, and carried it on with you as a member and as a spectator viewer to join in the conversation with them and carry that conversation forward. So definitely don't miss that. Tune in tomorrow, 10 a.m. Central Time on the Afterglow Show. And um, yeah, so we're excited for our next guest. In fact, our next guest is someone that we've known for a while. Um, we're starting something very new with him. We're gonna be launching the new healthcare community inside of GLOW. So this is very exciting for us. And you'll understand why after this next presentation with Todd Furness, why we've asked him to come on board as our market leader for healthcare, because he is so knowledgeable and such an expert when it comes to the basis of understanding healthcare here in the United States. So let me go ahead and make the introduction. Todd is a remarkable, remarkable man. I and mean, he's got 30 years of experience in the private equity, consulting, and really helping businesses to grow. Um, he's actually on the Globe Board of Directors, so we're very excited to have him on board. So without further ado, let me go ahead and bring on Todd Furness. Todd, welcome, and thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Michelle. I'm glad to be here. Yes, it's exciting. And the, and the launch of the new healthcare community, that's very exciting for us. But I'm sure people are going, okay, wait, who is Todd Furness and why is he the expert on healthcare? So I think it would be a good idea for us to understand not only your background and how you came to where you are today with the interest in healthcare, but what you're even doing in the healthcare space today. Sure. Well, for, again, thanks for having me today. I uh, got started in healthcare. Uh, in a long time ago in an uncomfortable way. Uh, sadly, my parents were involved in a plane crash when I was 17. And uh, my dad passed away immediately. My mother was injured uh, severely and was hospitalized with third degree burns mm -hmm. on her body and had a bunch of operations. But my sister and I and my grandmother uh, collectively had to learn how to, to start being a patient advocate you know, with a large complex hospital system. And we had to deal with things like moving my mom from Atlanta, which is near where the crash was, up to Virginia Beach, which then involved moving healthcare records and uh, educating doctors and bringing them to speed. And then she moved again and then again and again. And I had to deal with elder care issues with my mom, you know, was older and moved into an assisted care facility, then a memory care facility, and had to deal with those issues. And then all of the legal issues uh, along, along the way. So... Uh, that coupled with my professional experience, I'm a lawyer by training, but did a lot of work in the IT sector and the consulting sector, um, working on uh, technology issues related to healthcare and the business models of healthcare, trying to figure out uh, and help them run more efficiently. And so I've kind of touched the elephant from uh, all different sides and decided, well, you know, I haven't done the private equity element of this, and so private equity is a good place to go. Uh, given that's a good aggregation of my experiences and I can put them to good use. So at the end of the day, you know, I'm old Michelle. So I, uh, <laughs> I, I have this, this uh, very hubristic or, uh, amb ambition, which is to use what I've learned these, you know, many, many years in the space uh, to help improve the quality of, of America, of the life of Americans. Okay. So you felt so strongly about it that you wrote a book about it and tell us about the book. Yeah, so the book really kind of deconstructs the healthcare industry and its issues and tries to guide people 
uh, into a view on how things could be better and how they can personally get involved in making them better. So the idea is that it's not only a framework for a new way forward that builds on existing tools, rules, and regulations, and other elements of uh, things impacting the business model of healthcare, but additionally uh, focuses on how to reduce the cost of healthcare for everybody. You know, it came out the other day that uh, roughly 70% of our budget deficit uh, ties to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid alone. Uh, broadly, that's a lot of health care expenditure. And then if you add to that the issues that virtually every American has with health care, it's a, an enormous issue that we have to tackle and we have to tackle it right away. It's critical. I know that as a entrepreneur, as a business owner, um, right underneath salaries is health care on my expense sheet. So if there are ways for me to bring down the expense on health care, I'm all in it. So I want to learn more from you. You talk about tort reform. What do you mean about the tort reform? Give us, speak from some, you know, speak to us as though we know nothing about tort reform. Well, most people assume that that's where I'd start, given that I'm, you know, a lawyer by training, that I would focus on tort issues, which is really the an additional cost of doing business because when people don't get well or if, if unfortunate things happen, complications occur, then uh, as a society, we tend to be pretty litigious. Um, I don't focus very much on tort reform because I think there are other bigger issues facing the industry than tort reform, and there are other people that are doing hard work on tort reform already. Um, by some estimates, uh, there are some doctors who have to carry uh, policies that cost them over six figures a year. So before they've walked in the door, uh, they've already got a giant expense just in the form of uh, malpractice insurance. Again, if people don't do things correctly, they ought not to get away with it. So I'm not suggesting that people shouldn't be compensated if they're injured uh, through comp or if there's a complication, but it may not always be the doctor's fault. Anyway, and there are a bunch of other issues that are involved. My goal is not to focus on tort reform. My goal is to focus on the big moving parts in healthcare and to really uh, do what we can to make healthcare a far more affordable service offering. Okay. So Todd, you're focused on on uh, really uh, new business models for healthcare, right? So let's just talk about what you're focused on right now in the sense of business models for healthcare. Thank you for that, because I think this is the key issue. In my view, right now, we have completely mangled the relationship between patient and doctor, or patient and service provider more broadly. And what do I mean by that? Well, the way that we started with insurance really occurred back all the way back in 1943. FDR said, hey, we're, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, hey, we're going to have a problem with labor because we had the Second World War. We had 100 percent participation in the labor force. We had and that included everybody over age 10. Uh, today, it only includes people over 16. And um, so we he was correct in assuming that we were going to have a problem at the time. Unemployment was 1.3%, staggeringly low. So he said, well, I'm going to let, I'm not going to let you compete on wages. So he actually froze wages. What he did is he said, I'm going to let you compete with benefits. And we were looking, he was looking for a way to get closer to making uh, healthcare available to everybody. And so he said, I've got a good idea. I'm going to allow healthcare benefits to be characterized as a business expense 
but it's not going to be characterized as taxable income to the recipient of the benefit. Okay. So as a, as a business owner, we get to deduct the expense. So the, the bad news is it's an, a big expense. And the good news is it's deductible as a business expense. So it reduces your uh, taxable income. So that actually was then again codified in the 50s, and it's never gone away. And to give you an order of magnitude, if we just changed that one thing, if we taxed benefits to the recipients, First of all, all hell would break loose. Every, I would be wearing cement boots tomorrow. But, uh, but the second <laughs> thing is it would add a half a trillion dollars to the federal treasury. It's that big. Wow. The tax associated with the, the business expense deduction and the non-characterization of it as a taxable income is a half a trillion dollars to the U.S. Wow. federal treasury. So... That sounds like it's a good idea in a way. And, you know, hey, nobody really wants more taxes. They certainly didn't want to pay them themselves. And might, some folks may say hey, it's good for other people to pay more taxes. But at the end of the day, what has happened is we've kind of gotten away from taking care of our own health and we've made insurance into a layaway plan for healthcare. And by that, what I mean is, we don't actually pay for healthcare for the 60% of us who are getting it through our employer. We pay somebody to pay for our healthcare. We pay the insurance company to pay for our healthcare. Let me give you one quick example, Michelle. I love this. Okay. Uh, I've gotten a couple of chuckles out of this. The word premium. Now, what does the word premium mean? It's an odd word, isn't it? It has something to do with insurance. And all that you know is the real definition, the real words we should be using for the word premium are first amount patient pays. <laughs> okay, so what's deductible? Deductible is also an odd thing to say. What are you deducting from? Okay, deductible should be the second amount the patient pays. Mm -hmm. And what's, what's the copay? The copay should be the third amount the patient pays. In other words, the insurance company doesn't pay until you paid your premium, your deductible and your copay. And oh, by the way, copay should actually be the third and fourth amount the patient pays because the insurance company is paying its part of the copay with your money. From the monthly amount you pay each month. Exactly right. Hmm. So okay. think of these in these ways. And and what and what's interesting is I've asked a couple of dozen CEOs. Hey, you've got a big expense called healthcare benefits. Mm -hmm. Do you know how that's priced? And they say, well, it's something about, uh, and I said, well, well, let's start something simple. Who do you get your healthcare insurance from? Well, I get it from Blue Cross Blue Shield. No, you get it from your employer. Oh, well, yeah, I get it from my employer. And who does your employer get it from? The broker. Who's the broker get it from? The carrier. Okay, so you've got individual who goes to the employer, who goes to the broker, who goes to the carrier. So no direct relationship between the individual and the insurance company. And worse yet, the insurance company establishes its, its rates, its premiums, through the State Department of Insurance. So there's not really any true negotiation 
in, a, in, a, in the way that we would think about it, between the company and the insurance company. And worse yet, if you were go, to go in in a new job as a new job applicant, you say, you know, I like your benefits plan, but I'd like a little bit more of this and a little bit more less of that. They'd say, that's really good. You have two choices. You can accept our plan <laughs> or you can find a job elsewhere, right? So we have to think about the way that 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 one issue of privity of contract, the direct relationship between the buyer and the seller of services informs everything. It creates overhead, it takes, it causes cash flow delays, it creates risk. Uh, there's nothing particularly good about it except that you have the sense that somebody else is paying for your healthcare. And so we have people who are eager in strange ways to meet their deductible, for example. Why should you want to meet your deductible? You should avoid at all costs meeting your deductible, right? Because you hopefully we don't get that sick or that injured. Uh, and you hopefully don't have to pay all of that money out of pocket. That's just one example. Well, and the other thing I want to add to that is it's so complicated. I mean, my husband had hip surgery. And to understand what was to be paid for and what wasn't, it almost took a degree <laughs> to understand what you, have, what you should plan to pay for. and even reading the um, the material that would come to you. It's so confusing. It's, it is a great deal of work, most of which is unnecessary. And let me, and it's, it's far more expensive than it needs to be. And let me give you an example of this. Um, friend of mine had recently read my book and she needed an MRI. The MRI was gonna cost $3,200. And then she said, well, you know, I, I, the radiologist needs to read the, the MRI. That's going to be another $800. Total cost is $4,000. Now, this is the negotiated price that the insurance company has worked out with the provider of this service. And her deductible was $3,000. So she's going to have to come out of pocket $3,000 one way or another. So she says, hey, I just read this guy Furnace's book, uh, The 60% Solution Rethinking Healthcare. Uh, what's your cash price? The answer was $562 all in. So she saved $2,438. And the insurance company saved money too, which is great. And I'm all for that too. But she's, most importantly, she saved $2,438. So she may ultimately be able to use that for other healthcare needs through the course of the year or for her family's needs. Or she may use it for, you know, to go buy something else she wants, more importantly. So Todd, is, is, is the insurance company the one that's making all the money in this situation? Or is it because it's so layered, it's being split through four different parties? Well, I'm, I'm not going to curry any favor by this answer. But the answer is everybody's making money. And the reality is I would assert that no one is genuinely interested in reducing the price of healthcare. Now, that's a bold statement. Yeah, uh, but I just go back to the example of the four thousand dollar MRI versus the five hundred and sixty two dollar MRI. Why was she able to get it for five sixty two, and why was the uh, the lab services or the MRI provider able to do that? And gl and gladly, well, they didn't have to go through the expense of filing the claim. They didn't have to wait ninety to one hundred and twenty days to get the cash, which is the reimbursement. They didn't have to suffer the risk associated with getting the claim wrong. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So there's, she basically did what she did is she took the cost out of the system by paying cash. Okay. So you let's just keep this conversation going forward. So you also in the book like to talk about IT and accounting and um, all things that have to do with licensing. 
Why should the average American care about this? Well, that's a great question. One of the problems we have, I think, with uh, solutions or people who attempt to create solutions is they don't think in, in a way that I call systems thinking. In other words, they don't understand how some of these uh, things may work together in order to create a system that collectively works or doesn't work. And so to say, well, I'm going to I'm going to do something over here with IT, but I'm going to ignore accounting is not a good idea. You have to understand how inter how just intrinsically in, uh, interoperable they are and interdependent they are. So my view was you got to fix all these things simultaneously. And that doesn't mean it's hard. It just means you got to have a view towards solving the problem in a multidimensional way. So, for example, uh, on IT, we still don't have the kinds of IT systems in place that, uh, A, cause efficiency in the way we would hope. Lots of doctors report burnout, for example. They don't like the fact they can't have eye contact with their patients because they're looking at the damn tablet and they get frustrated because they don't have the kind of interactions that they used to have or they thought they were going to have when they became a doctor. Uh, they have to do uh, all sorts of follow-up with regard to coding and billing, and they don't like that either. And uh, frequently, the technology is uh, is cumbersome. Uh, we still don't have standard definitions for things like electronic health record or electronic medical record. We don't really understand what the difference is, if there is one. Uh, we don't understand how the accounting works from one hospital to another, so each one has, has a different set of rules. Some hospitals pay taxes, some hospitals don't. Uh, so all these things uh, have their own set of issues associated with them but they work together to make it more expensive than it needs to be. And then when it gets to licensing, you know, one of the problems we have that's really been highlighted as we've gone through COVID is this issue with not being able to create doctors and nurses fast enough. And we have an under a wild, if not acute undersupply of physicians and nurses of color. And there's, uh, you know, historic, there are historical reasons for that. I don't need to go into them all right now, but it's been a problem since 1910. So we have to figure out how to do things a little bit differently. We have to recognize that while the states as, as governing bodies have a legal interest in the health and welfare of their residents, it's also fair to say that when you cross state lines and go from uh, Texas into Louisiana, for example, your biology and your chemistry doesn't change. Now, some might argue that when you go from Texas to Oklahoma, it does, but, uh, <laughs> but it certainly doesn't when you, when, as a general, when you cross state lines. And so we ought to think, have that in mind with regard to things like telemedicine uh, and insurance structures. So there, there are a lot of things here that we have to solve simultaneously. And again, that doesn't mean it's hard. It just means you have to have a mind towards a solution that encompasses all these different attributes. I'm just curious and listening to you talk about, um, you know, the technology with healthcare and, and how we're behind in, in those areas. Are there other countries that are doing it right? Well, each, each um, advocate believes they have the country that does it exactly right. So mm -hmm. I have a friend of mine, a very good friend who lived in Japan for years. And he says, I got an MRI for $250. I paid cash and that off I went. You know, and he thinks that the Japanese model is fantastic. Well, the Japanese is a pretty populous country, but it's also very, very homogenous, much like uh, the Nordic countries that people like to point to. 
Um, and I'd say that each of these systems has its benefits and its detriments. People like to point to the Canadian system and they say, well, the Canadian system really works. Well, why, if that's, if it works so great, then why is it that uh, they, the Canadians frequently come to the United States because they can't get an MRI fast enough or a lab test or get a doctor's right. appointment, right? So, uh, and, you know, I've got another friend of mine who's uh, doing some very, very interesting work with protocols, uh, tr protocol transparency. And what's interesting is it's his, he is least successful in the United States where we have free markets because everybody believes there should be an unlimited supply of everything. And so capitalistic markets work to support that. Well, what's interesting for him is he's actually having his greatest success in socialized medicine countries because they're all about resource allocation and there's mm -hmm. a finite amount. So we got to decide, is it better to give the chemotherapy to the 50 year old sick person or the 70 year old largely healthy person, but for the fact that he has cancer? Well, it's right. a, oh, it, it, and you only got one set of chemo, so it has to go to one of the two. So, you, but people think that that's not going to happen in America if we have socialized medicine because we haven't done it right. You know, we're the only ones that could ever get socialized medicine correct. And it's a little bit unfair because to some extent we do have a lot of socialized medicine in our, in our models. Um, but I go back to, I think the real answer is going to be uh, consumerism and the closer we can get to more consumerism, then the better we are, off we are. Right. Consumer to the buyer. Right. Yes. So you write extensively and in, in, in the manner that you write, which you write, some people could construe that as that you're anti-insurance. Are you anti-insurance? I am so glad you asked that question because I am not anti-insurance. I just think it has a role to play and it's gotten it's gotten more extensive than it should be. You know, back 100 years ago, when I was young and impetuous, we used to have major medical. And the idea was you you took care of, you know, most of the routine care items uh, and some expensive items by paying it out of pocket. Well, we don't do that. I mean, you wouldn't think, Michelle, of having an insurance policy cover an oil change, would you, for your car? No. You wouldn't expect no. your auto insurance to cover oil changes or tires or brake fluid or windshield wiper fluid. And, no. and, and if you, but if you do get in an accident and somebody's hurt, you want the insurance to step in. Well, the, the original models or the models dating back a long time ago had uh, in, in their design really coming in only for major medical issues. My, what I advocate is that we actually help consumers be consumers. I should say help Americans be, be consumers by expanding health savings accounts, which is the way to put money into an account that is tax advantaged. So when you put the money into your HSA, then the, the money you put into your HSA reduces your taxable income, much like a business expense. Mm -hmm. So that's good news. For, for reasons I still don't really understand, the IRS has decided that there should be a limit on that at $7,200 per couple, roughly. So I advocate that you should have more uh, of, an, of an ability to put money into that HSA. And uh, the mm -hmm. companies ought to do a good thing by having flexible spending accounts, which is analogous, only the money is owned by the company. Uh, and we ought to also have the ability to get insurance policies whose premiums scale corresponding to the amount you have in your HSA. So if I said, hey, I want a $7,000 deductible because I've got $7,000 in my HSA, I ought to be able to do that. It shouldn't be hard. Mm -hmm. You'd be surprised at how hard it is. And you'd be surprised how little 
those uh, those numbers scale. My son uh, told me at one point in time, this is when he was, you know, a long time ago when he was still single. He, I said, what's your what's your premium or first amount the patient pays? And he laughed and he said, uh, it's not very much, but um, I have a really high deductible. And I said, what's your deductible? He said, my deductible is $10,000. I said, wow. I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm stunned you actually could get a plan like that. And I said, well, what's your premium? And his premium was $86 a month. But he was young. Yeah, he was you know, under 30 years old and a, and a male and no, no kids. And so uh, as a result of that, he, you know, it, 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 make, it made sense. But we ought to have uh, the ability of individuals to have more plans like that. The other thing that people don't realize is that far more people qualify for financial assistance than you would believe. It actually, in some instances, goes up to as much as four times the federal poverty level, which can go up to $106,000. And over 3,000 hospitals have financial assistance policies. They just don't advertise them. So you got to figure out how to, you know, you think think going through Vince's uh, explanation of benefits was hard. Try getting through, you know, an application for financial assistance. Uh, and so there, there are ways to get things done. Um, but we just, you know, I'm happy to say until my book came out, uh, we really didn't have much of a way to, to go figure that out. Okay. So when uh, you, you talked about the consumer, is that what you're talking about when you talk about consumerism? When I talk about consumerism, I mean that the individual who's, who's getting served mm-hmm. has a direct relationship with the person providing the service and that the person's being served or the patient pays the service provider directly to the full ex- extent possible. Okay. So direct. It's if direct. I, yeah, just direct. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so we can move more expenses to be direct. Everybody saves money and the cost of healthcare goes down. Now, in a strange way, the biggest driver for this is, is likely going to be the huge issues we faced on the horizon right now with regard to the trusts that support uh, Medicare that are Mm -hmm. going to be empty of dollars. Now we'll figure out, I'm sure we'll figure out a way to, to put more money in the till, but it's not uh, a, right now we don't have an answer and I don't think enough people are thinking about it. What do you, what is privity of contract? What is Pretty that? contract is just the direct relationship between the buyer and seller. Okay. So if I said, "Hey, Michelle, I want uh, I want to buy Vince's book from Vince," so I go and I say, "Hey, can I get a copy of Earthquake, Vince?" and he says yes, and he sells it to me, and I pay cash right there. Now I don't say, "Hey, Vince, I'd like to get a copy of your book, Earthquake," and uh, he doesn't. He then goes and says, "Well." Can you go talk to Michelle about that? And then if you pay Michelle, Michelle will pay me. You can fill out a contract with Michelle right. and then send an invoice. And then Michelle will send an invoice to, to me. And then I'll send the book directly to you. But then I'm going to wait for my money from Michelle. That <laughs> doesn't work that way. It shouldn't yeah. work that way. Now, um, one of the issues that I see in healthcare also is the price. If, you're, if you are paying out of pocket, those prices are still really expensive, Todd. Like if... if you know, for a mammogram to go have a mammogram done or a colonoscopy to go do those out of pocket. They're still very expensive. Well, that's what the common belief is. It's actually not always true. 
Now, mm-hmm. under the prior administration, there is a law put in place called the Pricing Transparency Act, or Price Transparency Act, and it mandates that healthcare systems put their prices on the web, and there's they've got an obligation to put on the web in machine readable format. Mm-hmm so that people can scrub the data and look at it and then do comparisons. Unsurprisingly, a lot of hospitals aren't complying and the fines are so low that it doesn't really harm them. However, there are people out there who've done the work of uh, cleaning up the data and put them into databases. And there are others who've gotten the data from other sources and have the legal right to use that data. So you can do price shopping now. And the price shopping will show you some pretty harrowing things. Uh, so colonoscopies, endoscopies, uh, those kinds of things, those should really run about uh, $1,200, not the tens of thousands of dollars that they can. Um, my favorite example of this is uh, the, the dialysis syringe that costs $5, and they bill $6,333 for it. That's the negotiated what? price. And what, what, I, what, really, what I like to go back, I go back to my friend who needed the MRI, and mm-hmm. she got the price of $562. I like to point out whenever I can, she was a soccer mom. Mm-hmm. And I like to think that soccer moms are the greatest activists of all time, of all time. But the thing that people don't realize is she, her price was seven times better than the negotiated price from the professional in wow. the insurance company who negotiated that price with uh, the, the service provider. That's just, that's to me is just nonsensical. Mm-hmm. So what I'm hearing is that you really have to be your own advocate for healthcare insurance or just for healthcare. So in that sense, you believe strongly about the um, healthcare savings accounts, right? Yes. So what, what do we need to do in order to set one up to get going? Are they available? Well, first of all, you should ask your, you know, if you're employed by a company that offers uh, extensive plans or, or plans, and you get your healthcare insurance through your employer, then you should you know, go talk to your employer and see if they offer a health savings accounts. Uh, and if they don't, then there are lots of service providers out there. Uh, they're easy to find. A simple Google search will be will yield a tremendous number of results. Um, lots of banks are involved, but it's, it's kind of hard for them to be uh, as efficient as others uh, because these are not large dollar amounts as a general rule. It's, it's you know, seldom would, it, would a health savings account uh, be tens of thousands of dollars, certainly when they, when they get started. Um, but the benefit, one of the other benefits of health savings accounts is that whatever money is in there, mm-hmm. it's yours. And guess what? When it goes from December 31st to January 1st, it's still yours. And whatever, if you have so enough So you don't money, have to use it. You don't that's correct. use it. That's right. right. And what other, and what else is good is if you invest that money um, and the and the money inside the HSA, the invested capital there makes money. That's also tax protected. You don't pay tax mm-hmm. on that either. And you can keep rolling this forward until you pass. And then when you pass, you can give it to your spouse. Now, I'm advocating that you'd be able to give it to more people than just your spouse. But right now, that's that's a limitation. But that's mm-hmm. an example of how, you know, if you if I said to a soccer mom, and I'm kind of picking on soccer moms here. If I said to a soccer mom, hey, I'm going to put $10,000 in your account, in your health savings account. You've got to use it to pay for 100% of your expenses. And you get to keep whatever's left over and roll it into next year. I am enormously confident that at the end of that year, there's going to be money left that's going to roll into the next year. Okay, so... Um... 
in the research you did in writing your book, you found quite a bit of information that's and, and some that really surprised you. What was that? Well, uh, the way that the entire system is set up really started with a guy named Abraham Flexner. Flexner uh, was commissioned by the Carnegie Foundation in 19, and wrote a report in 1910 called the Flexner Report. And he articulated not only uh, some observations about the way people were trained to be doctors, which is most people who are trained to be doctors didn't really go to what we would, we would consider today a medical school. Uh, there are only a few of those. And instead of enrolling at a, at a university in the, and going to get a degree in political science or finance, you get a degree in, in medicine. And you didn't have the uh, prerequisites of a four-year degree before you got into medical school. Flexner was the guy who, who created that. He said, hey, no, 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 this isn't enough training. You need to go to college first, then you need to go to medical school, and then you need to do uh, these other things after that. And by the way, he, you, know, you also have to do, use the empirical method and have science involved uh, in, in how medicine is practiced. And we need to you know, keep, do uh, all sorts of uh, research and use data effectively to see what's really going on. Um, one of the sad aspects of this is the fact that all but two historically black medical schools were closed as a result of Flexner's report. So that's when I said earlier, when I said earlier that we have an undersupply of uh, physicians of color. Now, part of that's because we have too few historically black uh, med schools. Meharry and Howard are the ones that survived. But the other issue is it's uh, is it's far more complicated. And, you know, I don't want to spend the time right now going through the detail of why it's complicated. It just is. Uh, and so that was really disappointing to learn. And then, uh, I, you know, just learning about all the other uh, imbalances in the way that healthcare has been delivered uh, since 1910, especially, but certainly before that as well, uh, it was really uh, unpleasant to, to learn. You know, I like to say that America was built uh, as a, an imperfect union, uh, mm -hmm. but our goal should really be to make it more perfect than when we found it. So uh, we're certainly not perfect now. We're never going to be perfect, but we ought to be more perfect tomorrow than we were yesterday. I like that. And you are the man to lead that charge for sure. I know you've got a passion behind it. Um, you wrote a book about it. Where can people find your book? And um, what's, you know, give them, give them the title and where we can go and purchase. Thank you. Uh, the 60% Solution, Rethinking Healthcare. And it's available at toddfurness.com. It's also available at Amazon and, uh, and other online bookstores are available to you. Yay. Yeah, I, I highly recommend it. It is it is very thick um, of content. And I say thick because you really have to, I, I mean, I put my nose into it, started reading the book, and it is chock full of great information um, that really does help you to understand the, on how to navigate the healthcare system and just what we should be looking for in regards to being our own advocate too. Um, it gives you insight to that, which is great. It's fantastic. So now you can understand why we've asked Todd to come on board as our market leader in the space of our healthcare community that we're going to be launching this month in January. Todd, thank you so much for being here today with us. Um, it was a, a privilege and an honor. I'm sure that you're going to be around. Um, we'll have you back on. We'll be answering all sorts of questions I know from our members. But until then, 
thank you very much. And uh, we look forward to seeing you on the community. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. So for all those that are still tuned in, I want to make sure that you're aware that we're going to be having our first inaugural event, the first event, inaugural is a little redundant, isn't it? The inaugural event for the Global Leaders Organization Summit, Dallas, Texas, March 3rd through the 6th. All sorts of great speaker lineups. Um, we've got Kevin Harrington, we've got the Drapers, Tim Draper, Jesse Draper, Vince Vicente, Ford Sakes, Dre Redfern, Matt McWilliams. I mean, the list just goes on and on. And uh, we will be so excited to see your face there with us. So please make sure you go to withglow.com and sign up to attend the conference and we'll see you there. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Kevin Harrington. I'm Samba Bachili. Nina Vaca, Chief Executive Officer of Pinnacle Group. An original shark from the hit TV show, Shark Tank. The CEO of ADS Group. The largest Latina-owned workforce solutions in America. I first identified myself as an entrepreneur when I was 15 years old. My mother and father immigrated here with a suitcase and a dream. I had a front row seat to entrepreneurship. I am living proof of what is possible in this country. Today, the marketplace is, is very tough. The challenge for African market today is its access to capital. The number one reason why we can't scale as entrepreneurs is access to capital. What makes Glow so different and so powerful is the access to experts, gurus, mentors, coaches, financiers, venture people, money. When I started my business, I immediately went to engage with different communities, different platforms. Glow makes that experience digital. A digital platform makes it so much faster and so much easier for you to meet like-minded people. The financial pl platform that Glow have that make Glow unique. Glow is about commerce, Glow is about community, and Glow is about having access to capital. Glow is an asset to every entrepreneur in this country and globally. It's, it's about helping you take your business, your idea, to the next step.